0: Part of what I think is difficult about being a mom or a dad is helping our kids grow in maturity. Maturity has such a wide variety of aspects to it. And a few years ago, I tried to do an exercise where I I tried to write down everything I wanted to instill in my kids before they left my house. So that was like how to open a bank account, uh, how to interpret Leviticus, how to change a flat tire, you know, just everything you could imagine. And I sat there for an hour, and I had this enormously long list, and I realized I could keep going for more hours and just make a longer and longer list, and I'll never get it done, because there's so many things you want to instill in your kids to help them reach maturity. And um, so it's clear from that simple exercise that achieving maturity isn't simple, and it's maybe even hard to define at times. And I was excited last week when Christopher uh, shared from God's Word in Ephesians chapter 4 about maturity. Because today I want to talk with you about maturity from Philippians chapter 3. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, so Philippians is one of the many letters that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote to the churches. If you want to go read about when Paul started the Philippian church, you can open it up uh, uh, later in, in Acts chapter 16. It tells a story about him and Silas and Timothy starting the church there, and uh, Paul mentions in Philippians how from the first day until now, they've been big supporters of his. They're they're very close to each other, Uh, and so this letter is written from Paul while he's in prison, and he's writing to these Philippians, and the church in Philippi, they faced fairly intense opposition. The city of Philippi had been started mostly by ex Roman soldiers who were sent there by the emperor to start a city, and it had one of uh, the distinct privileges of being a Roman colony, which is like a little piece of Rome that's not actually in Rome. So the people there were generally very loyal to the emperor, who they viewed as uh, king and savior, and so they naturally found the message of Jesus pretty offensive. So it's clear that Paul wrote Philippians for a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons he wrote it was so that the people there could rejoice in suffering. The, the church in Philippi was undergoing suffering, and he wanted them to rejoice in suffering. And Paul's writing it while he's rejoicing in suffering in the middle of a prison cell. So, uh, but, but the reality that drew me to this passage that we're going to look at today, and I pray it'll encourage you this morning, is Paul's clear articulation of the main goal of his life. Maybe more than anywhere else that Paul writes it, in Philippians 3, I think he really tells us what his life is all about. And he calls us to think just like him. In Philippians 3, verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Let those of us who are mature think this way. And Paul didn't send this letter to a group of pastors or spiritual elite. It was for the whole church. So it's for everybody here. So for those of us who would like to be mature in the faith, what is this way that we ought to be thinking? So today we're going to look at Philippians 3. Um, But before we get to that part about what Paul says about maturity, in verses 2 through 6 of Philippians 3. Paul uh, tells the Philippians to look out for people who would have them put confidence in their flesh, in the works of the flesh. And then he goes on this little kind of tirade explaining how, if we're going to play the game of flesh works, I totally whomp you. Like, I got this. But in, in light of how my life has gone, I look back at all of that whomping that I could do to you in the flesh works game, and I say, it is garbage. Right. So that's where, we, that's where we're opening it up today we're going to start in verse 7, where he explains the radical transformation of his perspective on life, having once put confidence in his flesh like they did. Now that looks like garbage. So let's, let's start in verse 7 and read together, verse 7 to 21. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Uh, Please pray with me, Lord. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to submit ourselves to it. We want you to speak. We want you to work in our hearts. We we cry out to you, Father, in your love and abounding steadfast love toward us, Would you help us this morning to hear what you want to say? And we pray you'd protect us from my failings and errors. Lord, let your word speak, let your spirit move in the hearts of your people that they would know you more, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we really want to answer a pretty straightforward question this morning of Paul wants those who are mature to think this way. What way is that? And the first answer that I propose is that It's a single-mindedness, an ultimate mentality, or uh, just a singular way of thinking. Right? That's that's his first uh, premise for us in the way the mature ought to think. Can you feel Paul's singular passion, especially in verses seven through nine? He has four different ways that he says he looks at everything there was, and he puts it in the loss column. Right? So he says all his old gains are now lost for the sake of Christ. Actually everything is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He's suffered the loss of all things, and all things are like garbage so that he can get Jesus and be united to him. Four different ways that Paul emphasizes. Everything before, lost column, so that I can get and know Jesus. And then verse 10 shows us why. The first, verse, uh, the first word in verse 10 is that, or it could be rendered so that. It tells us the reason that Paul was so big about putting everything in the lost column to know Jesus. He tells us the motivation. It is all so that he can know Christ. That is, as of, that is what is of surpassing worth. It makes everything else look like loss. And Paul doesn't say a lot of things about my old life now look like loss but some things I'm going to keep around. No, everything goes in the lost column. And Paul doesn't say that everything is lost because Jesus is like a little bit better. Paul says, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul leaves no room for rivals, competing priorities, or other life goals. Paul is kind of like an accountant here where he has two columns in the spreadsheet, loss and gain, and he takes his whole life and puts it in the lost column. And in the gain column, there is only one item, and it is Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything in Paul's accounting, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is all he wants. Singular, no rivals, no division. Every aspect of life is put in its proper place in light of the surpassing worth of Christ. And we can kind of see this in Psalm 73, which Mike read from earlier it says whom have i in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire besides you my flesh and my heart fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever it's like paul says whom has paul in heaven but jesus and there is nothing on earth that he desires besides jesus no other needs just jesus we have only one need church family only one need, if our flesh is failing, if our hearts are being rendered in two, in the midst of the worst we can come up with in this life, if we have Jesus, we have everything. And it might be kind of just semantics, but I think Americans love the word need. We need a break. We need a date night. Our kids need dance class and swim lessons and peers their own age to play with. We need, need, need these are all fine things, and they can be done to the glory of God, but they are not needs. We don't need security or health. We don't need financial stability or social acceptance. We need Jesus only. And Paul doesn't say that after he realizes the surpassing worth of Christ, that all these other things are neutral. He didn't have a neutral column in his spreadsheet gain, loss. There's no neutral column. He puts it all in the loss column. They are a negative, a hindrance. And this this can really challenge us. Can you say with Paul that everything is loss for the sake of Christ? There's probably some people here like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. What about my family, my house, my career? Aren't I supposed to care about those things? My dreams. Well, here's what Jesus says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I think Paul would say to you as far as all those things of this world, your job and house and dreams, help you to know and love Jesus, they are good. As much as they turn you to worship the one who gives them, they are good. But as far as those things that God has given to you make you fix your eyes on the things of this world, they are a hindrance. They are dangerous to your soul. They are a loss. Consider what Spurgeon said. If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything, and if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. If this doesn't resonate with you yet, if you haven't seen Jesus as of surpassing worth, then I challenge you to look at Jesus. Paul didn't have to, like, calculate the lostness of his former gains, right? He didn't sit there and think, how will I get a better life, and then he thought of how to go for Jesus. No as soon as he saw Jesus, he went, whoa, surpassing worth, everything else lost. He didn't have to do a calculation. So if you haven't seen that yet, the answer is, look at Jesus. Consider who he is. There is no other like him. He has all the power and authority to shape the world as he wants. He could have come down in power and rendered all of the sinners of the world in two, but he came down as a servant humbling himself, laying down his life to passionately love broken people like us. He is perfect and unchanging. You can count on him. If you put confidence in money and health and friends and family, they will all fail you. It might be today, tomorrow, or 50 years, but they will fail you. Jesus never changes. He is permanently able to fill you overflowing with joy. We could go on and on, but if you have not encountered the surpassing worth of Christ, spend time with Christ. Look at Him. Read the stories of Him. Talk with people who know Him. Learn of Christ. Nothing compares. And let me ask it this way for those who are not quite sure how they think about the surpassing worth of Christ, maybe, okay? If you could have heaven, you could have a place without pain or fear or tears, or sorrow, if you could have it there with the people you love, with comfort and ease, but Jesus wasn't there, would you want it? I imagine some people are like, oh, that sounds pretty good. That's kind of what I've always been wanting. I'm not sick, I'm not tired, and I got those I love. That sounds pretty perfect. Or does your heart go, no, no, I don't want that. I want Jesus, right? If you can be content with a heaven without Jesus, then you haven't encountered the surpassing worth of Christ. He is better than those other things. Christianity is not mostly about being a moral upstanding citizen, or uh, escaping hell, or participating in church activities. Christianity is mostly about knowing and treasuring Jesus above all else. So if you don't find your heart resonating with the truth that Jesus is the only one true-surpassing item in the gain column, I encourage you to spend some sober time of meditation and reflection on who he is and see if you can find him supremely valuable. And for those of us who have seen Jesus as worthwhile, let's still really soberly consider Paul's warning. Okay? In, in verses 17 through 19, Paul tells us, Brothers, join in imitating me, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The things of this world that draw us to set our minds here are not neutral. Paul didn't have a neutral column in his accounting spreadsheet, and when we let the good gifts of God take root in our hearts such that they draw our minds to focus on earthly things, they are not good for us anymore. You know, Paul was able to be, what he said, content in every situation, whether brought low or abounding, whether facing plenty or hunger, because his contentment was in knowing Christ, and that can't be taken away from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So if that is the only thing we need, and we really live like that's true, then our contentment can be stable. It won't fluctuate up and down with circumstances. Whether, uh, you know, if Jesus is our only gain, then imprisonment, hunger, persecution, unfaithful friends, sickness, whatever brokenness you are experiencing won't be able to touch your contentment. So uh, we also should notice that Paul he's not nonchalant about this one great goal of his to know Christ. If we look at verses 12-14, he's pretty clear. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He presses on. He has one thing he does, forgetting what lies in the past and straining, get that, not strolling forward, but straining forward with energy toward the finish line so that he can get that ultimate prize of fully knowing Jesus. Being in His presence, as we already thought about this morning, at the end of all things when God recreates the new heavens and the new earth, and we get to be in His presence, basking in His glory without any sort of filter between us and Him. That's the end goal. So we can learn from Paul's clear declaration of his very singular concern to know Christ and to press on energetically toward it. We don't just want to be strolling, but rather straining in that direction. So we should be looking to cultivate in our hearts greater affections for Jesus and a desire to know Him more. Some things will help us grow in knowing and wanting to know Christ more. So like for me, I like to get up in the morning and read the Bible and books by old dead guys with coffee. Old dead guys and coffee, that's my jam. I like that a lot. I also like to go outside and behold what God has made. The the big old ocean, the tiny little bug, I I find that encouraging to my soul to consider God's grandeur and his creativity and all of that. So, those are two examples of ways that I find that my heart is encouraged to, to desire God more, to delight in him and to want to know him even more. But everyone is different, so you need to think for yourself, what are ways that I can cultivate in my own heart a desire for God and to know him more? On the flip side, we have to avoid things that rob us of the opportunity to want to know Jesus more and usually we can stay pretty clear of like the really obvious bad sinful things that we know are bad for us and we get subtly trapped by the neutral ones so in my life I can't get into sports I tried in our early marriage every Saturday I would just be like watching college football in the fall only in the fall but like that's a long time so every Saturday in the fall, I'm just stuck to the college football TV screen. My wife's like, Hello! And you know, I, I'm totally unresponsive. And that doesn't help me know Jesus or want to know Jesus. It's just my mind set on earthly things. So I cut it out. I don't do sports. I can't do it without doing it wrongly, really. I struggle. So That's an example in my life, like, I don't, I don't really do sports. Maybe for you it's something else. But I imagine we all have things where our minds are tempted to be set on earthly things and those are not good for us. The question we should be asking is not is this acceptable, but rather will this help me know Christ more? Not is this acceptable. That's not a great question. Will this help me know Christ more or want to know Christ more? And we often do that, right? We we look at the options in front of us. We say, is it blatantly sinful? No? Okay, cool. I'll do what I want. Often, I decide I'd like to drink coffee. There's nothing wrong with drinking coffee before, like, there's a riot. I'm not saying you can't drink coffee, okay? I drink coffee regularly, but often I think I want a coffee, so I either make one or go buy one, and I don't really think much about it. And there's really nothing wrong with drinking coffee, but I should think about it, right? Is my belly my God? Is my mind set on an earthly pleasure? Perhaps I'm drinking coffee because I'm trying to get some energy, and I should be drawing my life from God and His Spirit? Or am I able to drink it with thankfulness in my heart to the good, kind God who created it and gave it to me? Am I getting a fix for my addiction or praising the Lord for His good gift? Those are pretty different, right? (laughs) So God's Word is totally sufficient, but it doesn't specifically address lots of issues in life, right? Right? Scripture doesn't mandate how many bedrooms should be in the house of a Christian, or how many are too many. It doesn't mandate that we take two weeks of vacation versus never taking one, or that Little League is good or bad, right? It doesn't talk about those things specifically. So we have to use wisdom as we think about the things of life. And Paul here gives us a really good principle that we can use in our daily lives. If our ultimate goal is to know Christ— let us make sure we use that lens in making the decisions of our life. Will this thing I'm considering help me grow in intimacy with Christ, or will it become a distraction and a hindrance that draws my mind onto the things of earth? You know, and a word that, that I think gets used a lot, you know, probably it's been a while, but definitely, definitely these days, is the word busy, right? Americans are very busy. It's almost like a greeting at this point, right, like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine, I'm just kind of busy, right? Like, it's, it's made it part of, like, every response we say to everyone who asks us how we're doing these days. And I don't think Paul would like the word busy. I think he wants us to live with intentionality, and there's a big difference between busy and full. If our schedule is full of activities that help us and others know Christ or want to know Christ more, praise God for a full schedule of good things, right? But if we are busy with the things of earth, if our time and our minds are occupied and fixed on the things of earth, that is not healthy for us or others. So, if we find ourselves busy all the time, we need to ask ourselves, Is this helping me or others know Christ more, or am I just filling up a schedule with earth? Now, life is full of needful things. This is Mother's Day. Mothers have a beautiful and important job, and it's mostly things that are very ordinary. Cleaning and cooking and teaching, and and it goes on repeat, right? You're never done. You just do it again the next day. Those things are meaningful and wonderful, and I'm not speaking against them. I'm not expecting that everyone sits around with the Bible and prayer 24-7. That doesn't make any sense. But what I am suggesting is that the cooking and the cleaning and the working of life are all done under the higher goal of knowing Christ more. We can cook and clean with an aim toward knowing Christ more or just to get through the day, right? And so just the call is to have that be the overarching goal of the day. Alright, right, so the first theme that we see about the mature believer's mindset is that we have a singular aim to know Christ Jesus as intimately as possible. So now I want to turn our attention to focus on what Paul is talking about more specifically when he talks about knowing Jesus. What would it look like to know Jesus like Paul's talking about? When Paul tells us that the aim of his life and what compelled him to label the whole life he had before as loss, is to know Jesus, what does he mean? Well, he doesn't just mean know things about Jesus. Even the demons know things about Jesus. Paul doesn't mean less than that, but he does mean a lot more than that, right? So Paul, he totally was interested in doctrine and defending Christ's character and everything about him as information. But what Paul is talking about here is to know Jesus intimately and experientially. He wants to be united to Jesus and to become like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ. How do you know that honey is sweet? Personally, I didn't read about it in a textbook and go, oh, honey is sweet, right? I tasted honey and went, whoa, that's really sweet and delicious. Paul doesn't want to read about Jesus in a textbook and say, Yeah, Jesus sounds great. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to experience life with Jesus. Verses 7 through 9 that we looked at already, they they show us these four different times where Paul says, loss, gain, loss, gain, my whole life for Christ. And then verse 10 shows us the motivation. And in verse 10, he shows us a fuller meaning of the kind of knowing that he's talking about. Because in verse 10, it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to know Jesus in this kind of way, namely in the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings. Paul wants experiential communion with Jesus like this. And if we stop halfway through verse 10, I think everyone gets on board really fast, right? That I might know him in the power of his resurrection, oh, that sounds really nice. And it might even be that you'd think the power of his resurrection, wouldn't that mean there isn't suffering, right? Like, if I'm going to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection, I shouldn't have to suffer because Jesus already conquered everything, right? Like, if we know him in the power of his resurrection, shouldn't life not have suffering, right? Like, doesn't that seem maybe the intuition? But we can't ignore the, other rest, the, the rest of that verse, right? Paul counts, everything as lost, has a single aim, to know Jesus, and the kind of knowing involves sharing Christ's sufferings. Paul wants to share in Jesus' resurrection, but the only way to resurrect is to die. The kind of power Paul is talking about doesn't keep us from suffering, but leads us into it. And I know suffering is a really weighty topic. There might be people who have terminal illness, broken marriages, suffering, grief, you know, depression, and I'm not trying to glance over those things, and Jesus wouldn't. He was very compassionate. If he were here, he would slow down and spend time with you in love and compassion. So we're not glancing over that, and if you want to talk, me, other people here, we're happy to talk with you, but today we're looking at Paul's words about the mature thinking of those who are in Christ, and it's to know Jesus in suffering. Most people go out of their way to avoid suffering, right? That's pretty common. And even in the church, I think we often have a primary desire to be spared, removed from, or overcome suffering. We end up with convenience, comfort, or ease being more important to us than knowing Christ. And some people would really like to think that suffering wasn't essential to the Christian life, but that's just not an option. And it's not a new problem, because since the very beginning, Jesus' disciples really struggled with this. In Matthew uh, yeah, 16, Jesus tells his disciples about what's going to happen, and they really couldn't get how the, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the cross, a Roman execution tool to humiliate criminals, could intersect. They seemed like they just wouldn't work. So in Matthew 16, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about this, here's, here's how it goes. Peter's mindset wasn't right. Peter just didn't get it. It seemed ridiculous to him that Jesus, the all powerful Messiah, should have to suffer and die on a cross. Surely the Messiah, with all the power, didn't have to do that. But Jesus' response is really clear. Peter's suggestion that he skip suffering is a hindrance to Jesus' obedience to the Father. He's thinking earthly thoughts. His mind is set on earthly things, the wrong place. He doesn't have a mature mindset. And this is totally a temptation for all of us, right? We often want to have a Christianity without the cross. But undeserved suffering is right at the very heart of our faith. There is no Christianity without suffering, and it wasn't just for Jesus. He told his disciples, you will be hated and suffer for my account. And in fact, Paul, in in Philippians, in chapter 1, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted. Same as the belief is a gift from God, the suffering has been granted from God. And Peter, the very one who wrongly set his mind on things of earth and rebuked Jesus, he tells us in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And again, he says, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. As Bonhoeffer puts it, our our Christian suffering begins with the call of Jesus to follow him. Following him can't be separated from taking up the cross. So the cross is not the culmination of an otherwise happy religious life. It is the point of departure. The beginning of community with Jesus is to pick up our cross. So Jesus left us this example of suffering to follow, And maturity means walking a path of suffering with the same mindset that Jesus had as He went to the cross. When Paul says the words, let those of us who are mature think this way, that word that's translated think this way in verse 15 is the same word that he uses in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, which starts with have this mind. Have be minded like this is what the word would mean. So, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus is what it says in Philippians 2. He's telling us about the mindset of Christ and how we should emulate it, and that's the same mindset he's bringing in in Philippians 3. So, let's let's read quickly the, the passage in Philippians 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we can see from that passage is that Paul doesn't want us to go out and look for suffering because suffering is like good. He doesn't want us to be lunatics who just think suffering's great. That's not the point. But he's telling us to have the mind of Christ, who humbled himself, yielded himself fully in obedience to the Father, even when it required intense suffering. We are to follow his example. Those who are mature would strive to yield themselves into the Father's hand, even if that means suffering. So Paul's call is to find someone to love, to serve, to care for sacrificially, and don't be deterred by suffering. Pursue being like Jesus and having his mindset. Don't pursue suffering, but as you pursue loving others, don't flee suffering that it'll take to love them in obedience to the Father. That's the mature Christian life. When we encounter Jesus and he awakens our heart to behold how exceedingly and surpassingly worthwhile he is, we set everything else in the lost column of our hearts. We don't get to hold on to bits and pieces of our old selves. We have to die to self. Our old desires, our dreams, our ambitions, our preferences, our plans, all in the lost column. We embrace the various forms of suffering in order to know Jesus more. Jesus is all. We must be utterly open-handed with ourselves before the Lord, or as Mike likes to put, we have to have our yes on the table, right? I mean, it's, it, Even if that means it takes you into suffering, the yes still is on the table. There's no stipulations where you get to withhold it. We must pick up our cross and follow Jesus to be his disciple. We must go where Jesus goes, but the great joy of doing that is that then we're where he is. We get to enjoy fellowship with him in his sufferings. And as we share them, we know him more, we experience him more fully, and we get to taste the sweetness of Jesus, not just read about some facts in a book. In order to most fully know Christ, Paul is happy. He wants to share in suffering and death. Paul wants to be like Jesus, to know him intimately, to have experiential communion with the risen Savior, and the way to do that is to follow him. In suffering. Just as an anecdote from our own experience uh, in the last four years, every year that we live in Thailand, we have to ask the the kingdom for the opportunity to live there one more year by asking for a visa. And the first couple times we did that, we did that in Chiang Mai, and we had a a local Thai person who helped us with that, which was wonderful. Um, But after moving out to Isan, we had to do it ourselves. And the first time... We had to do it. it was a unique experience. So, you got to prepare the big, thick thing of paperwork for each person in the family. Like, it's a massive stack of paperwork I take with me. And I hand over this stuff, and the official's looking through it. And it's the same stack of paperwork we used the year before in Chiang Mai, but everywhere's different. So, we hand them big paperwork, and they looked through it and, like, well, you need this and this and this. And some of them weren't a big deal, but one of them was like, I don't know how that's going to work. So basically, they wanted us to have an officially stamped, like, official translation of all of our kids' birth certificates and our marriage certificate. And I was like, I'm sorry, I have no idea how I would do that. What, what do you propose I would do? And she said, well, you'd probably have to go to the place in Bangkok. So we're about five days away from our visa expiring, and this was when Thailand was in the middle of a very strict COVID lockdown, and if I went to Bangkok, which was called a red area, I'd have to quarantine for 14 days. So, logistically, that just doesn't work. So, I, I gently brought that, I was like, I don't, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I'll be able to get back in time. And she said, well, I think there was once a language institute here in our town. And there might be someone there. And I was like, do you know where that is? She's like, no. So, I pull open the internet, I'm searching for the language institute, and I, so I find a place, and I, we drive over there, and my family drops me off thinking I'll go into the language institute and try to deal with stuff. And as I walk up to the door, it's just closed and locked and there's no lights on, there's no evidence of human activity for a long time. And so I just walk next door to some totally unrelated business and it's like, hey, do you know what happened to the Language Institute? And thankfully, one of the people who was there overheard me and was like, oh, I've got a friend who used to work there, let me call him up. So he calls and like, I'm listening to his one side of the conversation, oh, so it's closed? Well, like permanently, okay, okay. And uh, it turns out they had moved locations right? So I ended up having to go to a different location, and the story's much longer than this, but the point is, that year, getting our visas was very difficult, and it required God doing things that looked impossible. There were multiple moments where I'm like, well, I don't really know how to do this. There's nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. Lord, help me. The next year, we went in with a stack of paperwork and left two hours later with visas, and totally seamless, no problems. Which of those is better for me? I submit it's the first one. It was good for me. It stirred my heart to love God more, to lean into Him more, to spend time with Him more, right? In that small form of suffering, I was able to enjoy the presence of God more fully. There's lots of aspects to becoming mature, and as parents, as moms and dads, we know the difficulty of trying to list out everything you want to teach your kid and trying to help your kid grow in maturity. We're doing it imperfectly. And uh, still, even as imperfect parents, there's lots of times where my kids want something, and I say no. And there's lots of times they don't want something, and I say yes. Right? That's part of being a good parent is you, you have a perspective that lets you help your kid when they wouldn't know how to grow. Well, the good news is that our Heavenly Father is not imperfect. He is perfect in the way He helps us. And I'm so thankful He is too good and too kind to give me an easy life. He cares too much about my maturity to just give me everything I want and a life with no suffering. He wants us to be drawn up to a higher joy, a better good, a more full experience of His presence. And so he's filled our lives with different ways that he's drawing us to himself. He wants us to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So church family, as we press on to make this mature mindset of knowing Christ, especially in his sufferings, our own, we can't forget that he is the one who is doing this in us and holding us fast. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This word from Paul this morning is not a command to try harder and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, okay? It is a command to trust in the great Father who is at work in you and embrace what he is doing in your life. Today, Paul called us to grow in maturity, by fixing our minds on knowing Christ, including in suffering, to the maximum extent extent we can in this life for our joy. So let us press on to know him because he has made us his own, trusting that he will, by his spirit, grow us into maturity. Now, if God has stirred your heart in response to his word this morning, please don't just walk out of here without thinking this through. The point of this time is not intellectual assent with some facts out of a book, the point is that God will change us to be more like him as we behold him. So I encourage you just to spend time with the Lord um, in whatever he's brought to your mind. Ask God to work in you a greater desire to know Jesus, to joyfully share his sufferings, and to press on toward your heavenly home. Please, yeah, please uh, pray with me for just, just a second here. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you chose to lay aside, lay aside what you had to come down and humble yourself to serve and love and redeem broken people like us. We pray that you would, by your great mercy, help us to know you more, to desire to know you more, to rightly fix our eyes and minds on the things above instead of the things of earth. Lord, help bring conviction where we are fooling ourselves. And help us to know you more, we pray this morning in Jesus' name.